Pastor Mark. Good morning, church. Um, if I haven't had the privilege of meeting you yet, I'm Ben. I'm the community pastor here. And it's just a pleasure to be able to bring God's word to you this morning. Uh, we're in the middle of a series right now called The Bible, a story that makes sense of life. We're looking at the big picture of the Bible, how the Bible fits together and how it makes sense of our lives. And today we come into the fourth movement of the biblical story. We've looked at creation, fall, promise, and now Exodus. Now, Exodus isn't just a movement in the biblical story. It's also the second book of the Bible. And Exodus is super significant. It's a really important step we need to understand in the whole biblical storyline. But it not only helps us understand the story of the Bible, it also helps us understand our own lives. You see, in the Exodus, we see particular longings and questions of ours that are spoken into. So if you've ever had a question about God's faithfulness in your life, I'm sure many of us here can attest that where there have been times where we've suffered or we've been going through difficulty and we've wondered, where is God? Where is he? Is he faithful? Does he care? Well, there are people in the Exodus story who felt the same way and you're going to be able to relate to them and see how God answered that. If you've ever felt like a slave to something or oppressed by something or suffocated by something, whether it's the expectations of others or whether it's an addiction in your life, whatever it might be, the Exodus is going to speak into that. If you've ever felt like, when will this world ever get better? What will ever heal our world where there's wars in Ukraine and Taliban and Afghanistan? If you've ever felt that, the Exodus is going to point us to where healing will be, will be found, to where this world will be made right, or in biblical language, where blessing will be found for the earth that is under this curse. So the Exodus really speaks into some important questions we have, so we do well to listen to this story this morning. I'm going to be flying over Exodus chapters 1 all the way through to chapter 19. But before that, let me just tell us where we've been. Last week, Adam spoke about promise. He looked at Genesis chapter 12, where God appeared to Abraham and he entered into a covenant with him, which is this special relationship. And he gave Abraham really three main promises. He said, I will make you a great nation. He said, I will bring you into a beautiful land. And he said, I will not only bless you, but you will be a blessing to all the peoples of the earth. You are under the curse of judgment, but through Abraham's line, the curse will be undone in some sense. Blessing will come. And so as we look through the story of Genesis and indeed the whole Bible, we're looking at Israel and we're thinking, how are these things going to be fulfilled? By the end of the book of Genesis, Abraham has had Isaac, Isaac has had Jacob, Jacob has had 12 sons. Now Isaac, Jacob and his family, are at, by the end of the book of Genesis, they're in Egypt. So they're not in the promised land. And there's about 70 of them, so they're not yet a great nation. And they've only just partially begun to bless the nations through Joseph's life. And so we come to Exodus and we want to see where are these promises going to take us? Where is the God who covenanted with Abraham going to take this people? And as we open up the book of Exodus, we see in chapter 1 verse 7 that the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly. That's Genesis 1 language. God commanded us to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Well, they seem to be blessed by God. They're, they're exceedingly fruitful. They're multiplying greatly. And it says they increased in numbers and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. So they're starting to come towards becoming a great nation like God had promised Abraham. 
But then verse 8 sounds an ominous note. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. This king was Pharaoh. And Pharaoh was ruthless. He was paranoid. He looked at the Israelites growing and he said, if they join our enemies, they will overthrow our nation. So we've got to do something about this. And so they enslaved Israel. They put them into forced labor. Reminds me a bit of the strategy of the Nazis to to break people down. They put them into labor camps to break their spirit and slowly decrease their population. That's what Pharaoh seems to be doing here, oppressing the Israelites. But the more they oppressed them, the text says that the more they just increased and flourished. And the Egyptians started to dread the Israelites. so They treated them even more ruthlessly. Pharaoh told the Hebrew midwives, these ladies who would coach mothers through birth and pregnancy, that when the baby, if a baby boy was born, to kill it on the spot. Ruthless. But the, the midwives didn't obey Pharaoh. So he enacted another law. He told all the Egyptians, if you find a Hebrew boy, you are to drown him in the Nile. This is genocidal stuff. The people of Israel, they had been enslaved. Their children are being killed off. They are totally oppressed. And they must have been wondering, where is the God of Abraham? Where are we? What are we doing here? What, how is he going to help us? And it isn't until chapter 2 we begin to see God working towards something redemptive. The rest of the nation probably didn't know, but this little boy called Moses was born. And providentially, God protected him. And he ends up being adopted into the Egyptian royal family, no less, by Pharaoh's daughter. He grows up there. One day, when he's 40 years old, he looks at his people being oppressed, and he has compassion on them. And he goes down, and he sees an Israelite being ruthlessly beaten by one of the slave masters, probably almost going to die. And so Moses kills the Egyptian, hides his body in the sand. And he doesn't realize that he got found out. Word got out there. And so he had to flee from Egypt from Pharaoh before he got killed. And so he went out into the wilderness. He got married out there. He met a wife. He had some kids. He became a shepherd. And one day while he was shepherding, he saw this bush that was on fire, but it wasn't burning up. And so he came a little closer to the bush, and God spoke to him from the bush. And God said, I am the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And as you read through Exodus, God keeps saying this, I am the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. In other words, I'm the God who covenanted with Abraham. I'm the God who made those promises. I have not forgotten those promises. I am working to redeem my people from their oppression and their slavery. And so he commissions Moses to go back to Egypt. And Moses represents God. And and God, when he revealed himself in the burning bush, he said, here's my name, the name Yahweh. That's the name of the God of Israel. When you read the Old Testament, you see, the, see Lord in capital letters, L-O-R-D. That's Yahweh being translated. That's how we translate Yahweh in, in the Old Testament, if you see it in all capitals. And so Yahweh sends Moses back to Pharaoh and he says, Yahweh says, let my people go that they may come out into the wilderness and worship me. And Pharaoh says, who's Yahweh? I don't know who that is. You guys must have too much time on your hands if you're trying to ask me to let you go. And I'm going to make your work harder. I'm going to impress, oppress you even more. And and Moses cries out to God and and says, what what are you doing? It's even harder on the Israelites now. And this is where God begins to commission Moses to judge Egypt. And it's what we call the ten plagues. So Moses would come to Pharaoh and say, Yahweh says, let my people go. And if Pharaoh said no, he said, this is what will happen to you. This plague will come upon you. And these plagues weren't just designed to humble Pharaoh, but there's something even bigger going on. These plagues were a confrontation, a confrontation. 
between Yahweh, the God of Israel, and the false gods of Egypt. You see, in the story, in the first couple of plagues, the Egyptian magicians are actually able to replicate the plagues, the miracles in some way. They seem to have a little bit of supernatural power, but they're pretty hopeless compared to the power of Yahweh. And so these plagues are like a confrontation between God and the false gods of Egypt. The Bible later interprets them as demons behind that stuff that's going on. And so that's why when we see in the first plague, the Nile is turned to blood because the Egyptians worship the Nile. So Moses turned the Nile into blood through the power of God. They worshiped Amun-Re, the sun god, and he was in charge of the sun, for example. But in the ninth plague, God put darkness over the land for three days and the Egyptian gods could do nothing. Pharaoh himself was seen as a representative of the gods, even divine himself. And his divine line was broken. In the 10th plague, the death of the firstborns, his son was killed. And so God is actually confronting these false gods and these counterfeit gods in Egypt through the plagues. The 10th plague we need to slow down a bit on because in this plague, God makes it especially important for Israel to remember. He calls this day the Passover and he tells them to have a meal to remember this for the generations to come. And in this plague, the Israelites actually participate in some way. It's quite interesting. They're told to slaughter a lamb and take the blood and paint it over the door frames of their house. In some sense, they're meant to have faith in the blood of the lamb, that the blood of the lamb will protect them as Yahweh passes through the land in judgment. And so they, put, they trust God, they put their faith in the blood, and they paint it over the door frames. And when God passes through in this final tenth act of judgment, he passes over the Israelite homes that have the blood of the door frames, but then judges the Egyptians, and the firstborns die in Egypt. They had been drowning Hebrew boys for years, and now all of the firstborns of Egypt had died. And it was a terrible night, a terrible, dreadful judgment on Egypt. And this judgment, this plague, was the plague that finally loosened Pharaoh's grip on the Israelites' lives. He told Moses and Aaron, get out, go, be free. And so the Israelites packed up their bags and they left in haste that night. And they made their way to a place just next to the Red Sea. And as they camped out there, the Egyptians actually changed their minds. They said, no, we've let our labor force go. Our economy is going to go down. We need to go back and get our slaves. And so they came back with chariots. And humanly speaking, they were impressive, but nothing compared to the power of Yahweh, the power of God. And so God took his people, he, he blew the waters apart with a strong east wind, took his people through the waters. And as they came towards the end, the Egyptians started to come in, but then Moses was told to turn around, put his hand over the waters, and the waters closed in back over the Egyptian army. It was this ironic scene where they had been drowning Hebrew boys in water, and now they themselves were drowned and defeated by the power of Yahweh. And so these Israelites, on the before they went over the waters, they were slaves. But as they came to the other side, their identity had changed. They were free. Their nightmare was over. Their oppressors had been defeated. And this is where we see the first song in the Bible. They began to sing and to praise God for what he had done for them. And it says some of the ladies got tambourines and started to dance and praise God for this great act of deliverance. But God didn't just leave them there. He actually took them further into the wilderness, brought them before Mount Sinai, and appeared to them in great power. There was fire. His voice was booming. The people of Israel said to Moses, hey, you just speak to God and then relay it to us because we think we're going to die listening to this God. 
And Moses said, no, 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 you need to hear this because you need to fear God that you might not sin against him later. And it was at that mountain that God entered into a new covenant with his people. And this is what we call the Mosaic Covenant. So we looked at the Abrahamic Covenant in Genesis 12, and this is what we call the Mosaic Covenant. It doesn't replace the one with Abraham, it extends it and further expands upon it. And so God enters into a new covenant with his people, and this is where he brings this motley band of slaves together and makes them a holy nation. And he brings them under his rule, into his kingdom, to live under his rule and under his law, that they might be blessed and that they might know how it is that they can be a blessing to the nations around them. So that's Exodus 1 to 19. But what do we learn from this as people of the 21st century? Well, there's three lessons we can take home from this. The first is this. The Exodus shows us that God is a faithful promise keeper. God is a faithful promise keeper. Remember how the people of Israel were feeling when they were enslaved? Hopeless, wondering, where is the God of Abraham? They must have wondered whether God really is faithful, whether he even cared about them any longer, whether his promises were still true. And you know, I don't want to minimize what they went through, because I don't know anyone personally who's been a slave or who's been uh, a victim of genocidal acts, but we do suffer in this world that's broken. And sometimes, just like the Israelite slaves, we cry out to God and we groan under the, at the burdens of our suffering and we wonder if he hears us. And the question is, does he hear? Does he care? Will he remain faithful to his promises? And the answer of Exodus is yes, he does. The Exodus shows us that God is a faithful promise keeper. He never lies, he never forgets his promises, and he will never forsake his covenant or his people. In Exodus chapter 2, it says, the Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out. And where did their cry go? And their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. See, sometimes the darkest moments in our lives are a little bit like the dark scene in a play. There's one character left on the stage. They're hopeless. There's nothing else there. It seems like they're left alone. But the audience cannot see that behind, that backstage, the director is setting things towards redemption. They're ordering costume changes. They're organizing props. And they're going to propel the story towards redemption, even though the character can't see it. And that's a little bit like our lives at times. God is like the director behind the scenes. We can't always see what he's up to, but he's working. Romans 8 verse 28 says that we know that in all things, God is working together for our good. A little bit like a director in the scene of a play, ordering it towards redemption. The Exodus shows us that God is a faithful promise keeper. We can trust him. He never forgets his people. And I just want to say to you this morning, if you're in a place where you, you are suffering or you're wondering where is God or you're wondering about his promises, put your trust in Jesus. Put your trust in the God of the Exodus who did not forget his people, who was working through Moses and all those years that they didn't understand. He was working. He was setting things in motion to redeem his people and to fulfill his promises to Abraham. We can trust him. Secondly, the Exodus shows us how we find true freedom 
how we find true freedom. Freedom or redemption is probably the great theme of Exodus. God's people are rescued from slavery. But there's two sides to this freedom. If we imagine freedom as like a two-sided coin for a moment, the Western world seems to be obsessed with only one side of the coin. In the West, we have a one-sided view of freedom. We talk all the time about being free from something, but not always free for what. So we're always concerned with being free from people's opinions of us or religious institutions or some sort of authority. But then once we achieve that, we need to define and figure out for ourselves how we're going to use that freedom and what our desires are and how we're going to find fulfillment. And there's a thing called choice anxiety these days because people just don't know what to choose because there's just so much choice and they're not told how to live their lives or what, how they can flourish as human beings. But in the Exodus, there's two sides to the coin. They're certainly freed from something. They're freed from slavery in Egypt, but they're freed for God, to worship God, to come before Him in the mountain, to be loved by Him, to be gathered together, to be taught by Him what it means to be a genuine human being and how they're going to fulfill their purpose to be a blessing to the nations. That's how the freedom, freedom works in the Exodus. So we'll take a look at these, this freedom coin, but we'll look at the first side first. How were the people of Israel set free from Egypt? And what does it teach us about true freedom today? Well, God judged Egypt with ten plagues, like we saw. But it wasn't until the final and tenth plague that God's people were finally set free. It was the night of the Passover, the night when God finally defeated Egypt's counterfeit gods and the Pharaoh who represented them. And remember how God told Israel to trust that the blood of the lamb would spare them from death? Israel's freedom, Israel's rescue, Israel's salvation was an act of grace by God. This is before he took them to the mountain and gave them the law and the commands. Before he gave them the law, by grace, he chose to set them free and rescue them and give them salvation. And then later, he told them how to live. And that's how it always works in the Christian life. You don't need to perform first and obey the law first and clean up your life before God will rescue you and make you his child. Now you come to God, you bring your mess to him, and by grace, he rescues you. If you put your faith in him, and then he shows you how to live and how to flourish and how to find life. But what does the Exodus have to do with this, sorry, what, do, what does this have to do with our lives today? This lamb being slaughtered and blood painted over the homes. Well, we might think we're relatively free in the West. I mean, even in Australia, we just voted in a democratic election over the week, and we think we're pretty free. But Jesus told us that actually, apart from him, we are not free. In John chapter 8, Jesus said, Very truly, I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. If you ever mess up, if there, you make mistakes, if you hurt others, if there are times that you let yourself down, it's not just because you lack education or grit. It's because we're slaves to sin. Now, a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son, Jesus is talking about himself, if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. So Jesus says, maybe you're not enslaved by another nation, but all of us, without him, are enslaved to sin. But he alone can set you free. Now, the reason this has something to do with Exodus is because Jesus said that 
his death was an exodus. In Luke chapter 9, verse 31, he actually calls his death an exodus. In your Bible, it might be translated as departure, but the Greek word is exodos. It happens three times in the New Testament, once here in Luke 9, verse 31. And then later on in Luke's gospel, Jesus eats the Exodus meal, the Passover meal, with his disciples. And it just so happens to be the very night before he dies. And this is what he did at that meal. Luke 22, he took bread, gave thanks and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Now, whose body was given up to be slaughtered and whose blood was shed in the Passover? It was the lamb, right? Well, Jesus is saying that he is going to be like the Passover lamb in his death. It's going to be an exodus event, a freedom event. Jesus is going to be the one who was slaughtered and whose blood protected Israel from God's judgment against Egypt. Jesus' death is a kind of freedom event that sets God's people free from the things that enslave them, from the false gods we worship, like the Egyptian taskmasters who just ask us for more and for more and for more and grind us into the dust. Jesus will set us free from those false idols. Jesus will set us free from the sins we can't seem to stop doing. Jesus will set us free from the accusations of the adversary, of Satan, In Colossians 2, it says this, When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, that's in reference to the evil powers like Satan. Having disarmed them, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. So God cancelled the charge of our legal debt through Christ. And this charge stood against Adam's family line ever since the fall in Genesis 3. It was a charge that read deserving of death. Death entered our world in the rebellion of Adam and Eve. It's a charge that stood against us. But Jesus takes that charge, writes his name on it, serves a sentence on our behalf, and then rips it up at the other end, because it was finished. It was fulfilled by him. You can kind of imagine as if Jesus could go up to Satan, sin, and death, and he says, let my people go. Let my people go. And Satan says, well, no, they're guilty. I can't accuse them. And sin says, well, no, they're guilty before God. They've been judged by God. We have a right right to, to rule over them and to bend them away from God. And death says, well, no, they deserve death. I can claim their lives. Jesus says, let my people go. But in this Exodus event, something peculiar happens. God doesn't send plagues on Pharaoh. Instead, God has plagued himself. God takes on human flesh in the person of Jesus. And he takes our charge and he writes our name on it. And he's slaughtered the cross. And his blood is shed so that our charge will be ripped up at the end. And so he can take that out of Satan's hands and make him look like a fool for accusing us because they mean nothing anymore. Our guilt has been removed. He can tell sin to get out of our lives because it has no right to rule over us. He can tell death to shut up 
Because his resurrection has the final word in our lives. Jesus confronted evil and sin and death and Satan at the cross by dying in our place, on our behalf, for our sins. So if you're here this morning and you have this longing to be free, maybe you carry a vague guilt feeling around with you all the time. Maybe there is something that you're struggling with, a sin perhaps, something that you're addicted to that you want to be free from. Maybe you're plagued by fear. You're worried about death. You're worried about sickness and disease. You're worried about the uncertainty of life that death brings. Jesus came to set you free. He was like our Passover lamb. And if you put your faith in his blood, it removes God's judgment against your life. It removes Satan's right to accuse you, sin's right to rule over you, and death's right to claim you. Christ, 1 Corinthians 5 verse 7 says, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. The Exodus shows us how we find true freedom. But what about the other side of the coin? Jesus frees us from Satan, sin, and death, but what does he free us for? What is this new freedom to be used for? We're going to talk about that in the third and final lesson. The Exodus shows us how God will bless the nations. In the Exodus, God set Israel free from Pharaoh for true worship and for the fulfillment of his promises to Abraham. We're actually only going to find true freedom by reconnecting with the God who made us, who loves us, who knows what we need to flourish. You see, people in our world, we're being deceived by this one-sided view of freedom. And sometimes we think about it as we have to be free from God and religion and everything else as well, but it's actually the living God of the Bible that we need to get to know, who loves us, who can show us how to use our freedom, how we can flourish as human beings, how we can be a blessing to others. God set Israel free to deepen their relationship with him, to enter into a new covenant with them, to establish them as a nation and to lead them into their purpose to bless the nations. This is what God said to them in Exodus 19. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. God redeemed and freed Israel, and now he gathers them together as a holy nation who are to set themselves apart by loving God and loving neighbor, by following his law and keeping his commands. That is show how beautiful and blessed it is to live in God's kingdom under God's rule. And it says in Exodus 19 that they were meant to be a kingdom of priests. What does that mean? Well, what is a priest? A priest is an intermediary between a holy God and a sinful people. And so they were meant to act as intermediaries, like a bridge, inviting people back into relationship with their creator to come under his blessing. So we see that the Exodus actually moves us forward in the story we've been looking at so far. We see those three ingredients Adam talked about last week in the Abrahamic covenant begin to be fulfilled. Can you remember what the three ingredients were last week? Not steak, chips, and beer. God promised Abraham that they would become a great nation. And this is what's happened to Israel now. They've become a nation before God. 
God promised Abraham that he'd be given a land. Well, they're on their way to the promised land now. And God promised Abraham that he would be a blessing to the nations. And this is, they're going to be that blessing when they live under the blessedness of God's rule, obeying him. And as they live like that, they're going to be a blessing to others, inviting them in to come and know their creator as well. So I guess what we're left with at the end of the story are some questions. Will they enter the promised land? Will they be a blessing to the nations as God promised Abraham? Will they obey God and keep his covenant? Or will they fail? Next week, we'll pick up the story again with the rise of Israel's kings. But between now and then, Israel fails horribly. It's a sad story. If you read the book of Judges especially, it shows us there's just this cycle, this downward spiral. And by the end of the book of Judges, Israel is pictured as if they're Sodom and Gomorrah. They've become as bad as they can possibly be. They're not a blessing to the nations. They're not a light to the nations. You see, Israel, their exodus event was really just a big sign pointing forward to the real exodus. They had only been set free from their external nation of slavery, but they had not been set free from the slavery of the heart from the sin that infects the human heart. And so their hearts were still bent in rebellion towards God, and they could not keep his covenant. But the good news for us today is that that freedom is available to us in Jesus. And it's a freedom that you and I can step into. He has defeated our real enemy, Satan, sin, and death, so that we together can be the blessing to the nations that God has always intended his people to be. You and I are not here just to wait and go to heaven. No, by God's grace, we're going to live full lives and enjoy God and enjoy living for Him and enjoy seeing how life works under Him. And by God's grace, we're going to be a blessing to our neighbors and be able to invite them to come and get to know Jesus so that more people might find life in Jesus. Here's who God says you are, church. I want you to hear these words. And these are words that are taken almost from Exodus 19, but they come in the New Testament from 1 Peter. This is what they say. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Don't forget who you are. Don't forget who we are together. We've been given a high and holy calling to enjoy God and to extend his blessing throughout this world. So let's do that together by God's grace. Let's pray. Well, we thank you so much for your word to us, that you speak to us today. Father, we thank you that you do not forget your people, that you are always faithful to your promises. And Lord, we just come before you today, Lord, and so easy to forget who we really are it's so easy to forget what you've created us for and Lord we just pray by your grace and by the power of your spirit that you would raise us up Lord that we would keep entering into and keep walking in the identity you've given us to be in this world that we might be a blessing to our neighbors that we might point people to the gospel that tells them that by grace they can have this new relationship with their creator Lord, have your way among us. Pour out your spirit. Bless us so that we might be a blessing. 
We love you, Lord. And we thank you that you've won the ultimate victory in Christ. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.